1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 12 to 26. Just as a body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptised by one spirit so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part, but of many. Now, if the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason stop being part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has placed the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honourable, we treat with special honour. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty. While our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has put the body together, giving great honour to the parts that lacked it so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honoured, every part rejoices with it. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, I wonder if you've watched any of these movies. Um, Ants uh, is the main one that I'll use. It's, they're all kids' movies. Perhaps you've watched them with your children. They've basically got the same plot. All right? In each of them, there is a main character. In Ants, I'll talk from, it's Z. And Z is a worker ant, as opposed to a worker bee or a battery hen. And every day is kind of the same for Z. He just uh, has to dig or... Um, work or, uh, and there's a sense of, of life is meaningless, it's pointless, it's routine, it's structured, he just does what he's told, there's lots of ants exactly like him, there's nothing special or unique about him, his contribution is no different to anybody else's, and, and Z has this intuition that life should be about more, that apart from his little um, hive or nest or... Um, or colony, there's a big wide world out there that, that he's just busting to go and explore and somehow in the process of breaking out of his small world and exploring, he's going to learn not just about life but about himself and he's be- going to become a bigger and a richer and a deeper person. Um, well, sometimes I think we actually read scripture a little bit the same. We have this sense that, you know, there are some individuals who just need to step out of the norm, step away from what everybody else is doing, and when they do, somehow they're stepping into a moment where they shine, where they stand up for God, and they be all that they could be. 
they, they discover their purpose and their calling. And, and so think about Noah. He lives in the days where everybody turns against God and somehow he's different. He swims against the tide. Or it's Moses who goes to Pharaoh and says, you know, let my people go. He makes a stand. Or Queen Esther, the Jews are uh, in trouble. Uh, there's, there's a day of reckoning that's kind of coming. And Mordecai comes to Esther and Esther needs to take some risks and step out and to uh, challenge King Xerxes. Uh, and, and she does. Um, and it ends up being uh, a saving event for her and for her people. Or, of course, uh, Daniel in the lion's den or Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego in the fire. It's about saying, you know, we'll keep praying to God. Uh, we won't bow down and worship any idols. Uh, we're not going to go where everybody else goes. We, we want to step up and we want to be different. They're individuals who make a stand for their convictions. Of course, that's Old Testament narrative. In the New Testament, we also have this sense that I'm an individual and there's something about me that is peculiar, that is kind of unique. And so let's look at it from a different side. We, we actually kind of have unique challenges, right? So Jesus turns to Peter in particular, not just to all of the 12, but to Peter. The sins that Peter struggles with are different from the sins of Judas or the others. And so he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're a stumbling block. You've got the wrong things in mind. And then he says to all the disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life, or the word could also be translated, their soul. After Jesus challenges the rich man, he says, you know, whoever gives up homes or family or work, there's, there's something that's potentially an idol in each of us that's different from others. And we have to be prepared as an individual to take up our cross and to follow Jesus. And it's not in holding on to our soul that we are saved, but actually in giving that up. Well, those are the ways that I think we're most wired to notice what's going on in Scripture. But there's other stories in Scripture that have a different dimension to them, a different edge, and I don't think we get these stories as readily. They, they, they just don't make sense to us. They make sense to other cultures who see the world differently than this. Take this story, for instance, Achan's sin in Joshua chapter 7. Um, so Israel's crossed the Red Sea. They've just fought the Battle of Jericho and the walls have come tumbling down. And, um, of course, Rahab, one woman and her family are saved. And now one man and his family are wiped out. Achan goes into Jericho. He sees some... Uh, gold and some silver and some fine fabric. He steals them. They're commanded to bring everything to God. He brings them back to his tent. He buries them. It seems like nobody notices and he's gotten away with it. They go off to their next battle, Ai, and the entire nation suffers a defeat. 
One man sins and the whole nation loses. One man sins and 36 men die. Imagine you're a spouse of the person who dies in battle because somebody else sinned. Imagine you lose a father because somebody else sinned. And you know what happens after that? Achan is stoned along with his children and his livestock. How weird is that? That does not sound fair, does it? There's something corporate about Israel's nature that means that when one person sins, everyone is infected. And we're not quite as individual as what we think we might be. Well, today's passage is a little bit more in line with the Achan story. And what Paul is telling the Corinthians, and we'll come to their struggles in a minute, is that you're all somehow connected. There is one body, one Lord, one Spirit, but this one body is made up of many parts, and the parts are different from each other. There are noses that can smell. There are ears that can hear. There are eyes that can see. And an ear does not do what a nose can do. A hand does not do what a foot can do. They're distinct from each other. And so there's this sense of difference and yet connectedness. There's this sense of separateness and yet oneness that operates in the body of Christ. What we're kind of talking about here is an age-old dilemma that has faced humanity. How do we understand ourselves? Are we individuals who are kind of unique and special and we have gifts and we have um, idiosyncrasies that kind of make us who we are? And that's the way that Western culture tends to think about people. That's what will seem intuitively right to us. But of course, other cultures are more collectivist cultures. And we're kind of nervous about those cultures, right? Um, we kind of look at China, for instance, and we kind of go, yeah, individuals get squashed in that culture. That's dangerous collectivism. That kind of stuff can kind of go pear-shaped. Uh, and it's not just China where we see this. It would be Myanmar at the moment um, or Cambodia. And we're kind of going, you know, this idea that somehow people are all cut from the same cloth, that we're all from the one bit of paper and we're all kind of exactly like each other, that doesn't sit well with us, that understanding of personhood. We, we, we're more inclined to kind of think of ourselves as, as individuals and, and, you know, we're like Daniel uh, or we're like um, Peter or... Uh, whoever we want to think ourselves as being like, Esther. Which is the biblical approach? Is, is the Bible kind of more collectivist or is it more individualist? And I suspect the answer is neither. In fact, um, 
one of my lecturers at college, Michael Hill, wrote a great book, The How and Why of Love. Uh, he used the phrase interrelationalism. And his, his way of explaining this was that it's not that we are individuals who are autonomous, who are separate, but we are individuals who are different, yes, but we are connected in relationships. And it's actually in being a father or a brother or a fellow body member that I kind of find my identity. So let me just unpack how interrelationalism works in this passage, right? I'm separate. I have a particular set of gifts, as do you. And your gifts are different from mine. And, and so you function in the body in different ways. You bring different blessings to our body than what other people do. And yet, at the same time, we are also joined. There's one body and there's one spirit. So let me try and just repeat this in a number of different ways. We could also say, I'm independent. I'm a foot. I do what a foot does. I'm a nose. I do what a nose does. But, but we can also say, I'm dependent. I, I might do this, but I actually need hands that can do this and eyes that can do this. And without the other members of my body, I'm incomplete. We could say, Jesus is my Lord and I need to repent as an individual of the sins that particularly tempt me. But we could also say at the same time, Jesus is the head of the entire body and Christ gives himself for the church. He doesn't just die for me alone. Both statements are simultaneously true. We could say, I am my own person and I'm responsible for my choices. There will be consequences for my actions. I will be rewarded with uh, gold or silver or wh whatever it is I've chosen to invest in this life. And yet, at the same time, we belong to each other. And I'm not just my own person. I am distinct and I'm connected. Now, you might be saying to yourself, oh, okay, that's an interesting bit of psychology. Um, is this a sermon or is this a counselling session, right? Uh, well, um, let me try and give it to you as a picture. We tend to think in our culture of ourselves as an individual. You want to understand me? Look at me. Look at the things I can do and I can't do, the things I'm passionate about, my giftings, my callings, whatever it might be. But I think the picture that we get in Scripture is that I'm not just an individual. Actually, I'm a part of a system. I'm a part of a body. And if you wanted to understand me, you'd have to understand something about my mother and my father and my brother and my sister and, and my wife and my children because all of those impact who I am and how I behave and how... I understand myself and how I be in the world. And that's part of what happens in Scripture. So, today's sermon is called A Separate Member of One Body. And when Paul is using this word member, 
in 1 Corinthians 12, think my arm is a member and my leg are members. It's an old-fashioned use of the word. We, we now tend to think of membership as associated with organisations or something like that, but uh, it used to mean a body part. You can lose a member. We are all separate members, but one body. Now, it's possible to get the balance wrong, to be focused on being too separate. You know, that's like the hands getting together and saying, let's have a hands convention and let's have a bit of a gossiping about the feet and what we don't like about the feet, right? Um, uh, and it's also possible to be too joined, right? And, and the separateness is kind of lost. And to use some vocab, we might want to call this, in systems theory, being disconnected on one side or isolated and being fused or being enmeshed on the other side. And what we want to aim for is to be separate and yet part connected of one body. And we'll call that differentiated. So let me try and ground this in scripture for you. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. That is being too separate. That's an error to one side. The head can't say to the feet, I don't need you. Actually, we are all interconnected and interdependent and we all need each other. Here's another example in Scripture where someone is too independent. Suppose a brother or a sister, so a member of a church family, and remember, church is quite small and it's meeting in people's homes, it's very intimate, um, is with our clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and be well fed, our version of that is, I'll pray for you, um, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is that? In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by actions, is dead. A person of faith in a family, in a system, expresses their faith by actually leaning in and getting involved, not staying at arm's length and being disconnected. So, let me give you some examples from Scripture of people who I would interpret as being too disconnected. Moses, in his initial response at the burning bush, or Esther, when Mordecai first comes to her. The answer is, not my problem. Somebody else can solve this, but actually, uh, you know, I can't speak. Or, who am I? I can't go visit the king. Right? And, and so there's this kind of like, hey, I, I want to keep it safe. I want to stay my distance. I don't want to get involved. The rich man and Lazarus. The rich man has poor, sick, starving Lazarus at his uh, door, uh, at the end of his table, and yet he doesn't respond in any way. Ananias and Sapphira, uh, they're members of the early church in Acts 5 who sell land, and in some sense they want to give something to the poor, but mostly they want to have the reputation of being seen to be generous, of the status of being patrons, and what do they do? They give a bit, 
keep some for themselves, but tell Peter that they've given everything. So there's kind of like selfishness and separateness that is their sin. And exactly like Achan, there's a death early on in the formation of Israel, early on in the formation of the first church. 1 Corinthians has got to be the classic book, though, for too much separateness. And we get it in chapters 9, 10, and 12. In chapter 9, uh, there's people who talk about their rights. I have rights. I want to claim and exercise my rights. And Paul says, rights are things you have, and then you give them up so that you can serve others. And then in chapter 10, there's some other people who say, my conscience is clear. I've arrived at a theological position. It's okay to eat meat. And Paul says, I agree with you. That is the correct theological position. But don't eat meat in ways that cause your brother or your sister to stumble. You forego your own preferences, even if it happens to be theologically correct for the sake of your brother or your sister. And then in 1 Corinthians 12, the background here is we've got the spiritual elite, people who like to look clever, who want to speak up and practice their gifts and show that they're somehow connected to the angels. And Paul says the point of your gifts, it's not about you looking impressive, it's about serving and blessing your body. And so there's a pattern of sin that looks like falling on the wrong side of this ledger. Too much separateness. We're actually pretty good at naming this sin up in the church. And we tend to call this selfishness. And it is. Uh, And sometimes we speak against this sin and we talk about how we've got to be like Jesus who never thought about himself and we've got to love selflessly. And But what I'm suggesting to you, what systems theory is suggesting to you, is that actually it's possible to be too fused, to be too enmeshed, and that also is problematic. So now let me try and give you some examples from Scripture of people who I think are too fused. Adam and Eve. Eve listens to the snake, and then she goes to Adam and says, hey, I think this fruit looks good, and I think the consequences are going to be good. So I'm going to eat it. You want to eat it with me? And somehow Adam is so wedded to his wife's position that he does what she does. What he ought to do is say, hey, I've listened, I've heard you, but actually I disagree with you. We'll look at this next week, so I don't want to say too much about this. But the classic example in Scripture of a messed up, fused and separate family, both are going on at exactly the same time, is Isaac and Rebecca's family. So you've got Isaac who is fused with Esau but disconnected from Jacob. And you've got Rebecca who is fused with Jacob but disconnected from Esau. And doesn't that get messy? One son has to run away and the family breaks down. We'll look at that next week. Uh, Another would be David and Bathsheba, who, because of his union with Bathsheba, actually become so aligned 
with her and her reputation and his desires for her that he will lie and murder in order to cover up and continue that connection with her. The places that falling on the wrong side of the ledger could take, ledger could take us. Scary. Here's another, and we've got to get our head around first century culture, right? It's an honour-shame culture. And so what's most important is the reputation of your family. Joseph appears to have died. Jesus is the oldest male in his family. And now his mothers and his brothers come to him and say, Jesus, this is getting a little bit embarrassing. Who do you think you are, running around as if you're some kind of a rabbi? Why don't you just come back home and don't embarrass the family and fulfill your role? It's because of an overfused view of family that initially, at least, Mary and Jesus' brothers can't appreciate Jesus for who he is. And here's perhaps uh, another classic, uh, and this is Peter. So we heard about Peter a month ago, right? He um, has that vision and he realises that God has declared all foods clean and by that he's actually saying that the Gentiles are clean and the gospel should go to them. Uh, A few years later, Peter is in a church in Galatia and some men, certain men from James come is the quote from Acts. And these are guys from the conservative head office. And Peter knows what they're thinking. Peter knows that these are people who think you should be circumcised, who think you shouldn't eat unclean food. And so Peter has been sharing table fellowship with the Gentiles in line with what God in person told him. And yet somehow, because of his fusion With the Jews in Jerusalem, he steps back and away from table fellowship. And Paul has to come and tell him off. Isn't that astounding? Imagine if God spoke to you in a vision and three times he told you to do something and you messed up and then years later you mess up. Actually, you don't need to imagine that at all. We kind of do that, don't we? Somehow... The sins that haunt us have a way of reinventing themselves and coming coming back to bite us. So, if too separate is not healthy, if too fused is not healthy, what's the healthy path in the middle? What, what, what does differentiation actually look like? And... Uh, you can think of examples in Scripture where this kind of happens as I'm speaking. But um, I'll move into the first person a little bit more. Um, I think it looks like I'm your friend, I enjoy your company, but actually I won't participate with you in what or whatever it is, the sinful behaviour that, that kind of is your particular temptation. Oh, here's another I'm going to make some choices about how I exercise my rights, gifting, use my time, use my resources, whatever. whatever. But I'm not going to make choices 
that undermine you, that cause you to stumble, that invite you to break your own conscience. Differentiation can look like this. I, I care and I help you, but I don't forever rescue you. Jesus says to the woman caught in adultery and to one of the blind people that he heals, go, you're healed, or your sins are forgiven, or don't they condemn you, I don't condemn you either. And then he says, go and sin no more. He frees them and then invites them to live in the freedom that they have been granted. And I think at times we can understand ourselves, we can define ourselves as, well, I'm a caring person and what I do is I just give and I give and I give and that's part of my Christian service. And, and actually, we can actually define ourselves as, as uh, you know, I, I'm a saviour, can I use that word? I, I'm a rescuer. And that actually is unhelpful, ultimately, to the people that we're helping, because it doesn't empower them. Or it can be on the opposite side of the ledger too. When life is stressful and overwhelming and we're feeling anxious and we're not sure what to do, there can be this incredible sense of relief in handing the responsibility for the next decision, for the path out of this mess, just giving that to somebody else. I don't know what to do. Can you choose for me? Can you help me? And that anxiety just lifts. But it's close to saying, can you rescue me? And what do you do the next time you feel anxious? Or what do you do the next time you feel unloved? Maybe you have another little disaster so that a rescuer can come in and love you again. Can you see? Differentiation cares for people, but then empowers them. Here's another. I listen and empathise, but I don't always agree with your thoughts, and I don't always share your feelings. Oh, that is so hard. Uh, do you find yourself, when somebody's telling you a story about some injustice that's going to happen at their work or wherever it is, there's your kids at school, and um, if your children are hurt, you're hurt. If your spouse is angry, you get angry. And maybe that's appropriate, but maybe not. In fact, uh, you will find yourself drawn into the idea that somehow if I'm angry, you have to be angry. I'm sure you've had a conversation where, you know, hey, I, I hear what you're saying and I understand what's going on for you and, and I get why you're feeling the way you feel. Actually, I, I don't quite feel the same way. You haven't listened. Like, you, you, if, if I'm angry, you, you're not angry, so you haven't listened to me. Right? We actually actively work against allowing the other to be differentiated from us. Those are all unhealthy patterns that can lead to dysfunctional families. Instead, what we want to be is, at times, connected, 
and yet also separate. These movies are all kind of cool because they have this nice, neat ending where the ant or the bee goes off into the big wide world and discovers all sorts of opportunities and realities that their little um, nest never provided. And then somehow they realise that there's a crisis back with their family and they return a different person, a differentiated person, actually. And they're able to be a blessing and bring some sort of a solution to a crisis for their extended family, one that they never could have brought when they were just previously fused. That's how we're meant to be behaving in church. And in some ways, actually, there's something of the gospel in all of this. Because we can be a separate member of one body precisely because the Trinity is made up of three separate persons and yet one God. So... The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are all God, but just like the hand is not a foot, the Father is not the Son, and the Son is not the Spirit. And we're about to come into communion, but precisely this reality is played out on the cross. Jesus takes on our sin, and that forces a separation between the Father and the Son. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then, after that time, three hours of separateness, Jesus can say, into my, your hands, Father, I commit myself. And the unity is returned. Jesus goes through that degree of separation because of our sinfulness. So I'm going to invite you to come forward to communion in a minute. I'm going to serve the people who are leading first if they want to make their way up. But here's a question I want you to ask yourself, and that is this. Which are you more inclined to? Are you a kind of a... Actually, I like to keep things at arm's length. I like my world clean and tidy and... Actually, Matt, can you just serve the people while I'm... Um, I like my world clean and tidy and I don't want to be kind of locked in. Is, is that your natural intuition? Or do you perhaps err on the other side of the ledger where when you're hurt, you expect everyone around you to also feel hurt? Or when you're angry, everyone else has to be angry. And somehow we... Um, we fail to allow people to be different than us in ways that is unhealthy and unhelpful. We'll think about that more next week with Isaac and Rebecca's family. But why don't you, as you come forward for communion, as you take and eat this bread and remember that Jesus died for you, why don't you think about What is the inclination of my heart that I need to repent of? How is it that my relationships are either self-protective 
or self-serving in that I need to be somebody, I need to be somebody's saviour. But only Jesus can be their saviour, not you. As you take and eat this bread, remember that Jesus died for you and for everyone else and only he could be their saviour. And then as you drink this drink, remember that because of Christ's death and resurrection, we can be a healthy family where as separate members we bring our gifts and we bless and we serve each other. Why don't you come forward for communion?